Try that one more time. Good morning. Um, It's amazing to be here. Thanks so much, Nick and Becky and Chris and others for inviting me to come and share. Just so excited to be with you, to be amongst such an incredible group of people. Just want to encourage you, look around the room right now. Just look across, um, see who else is in the room. You are amongst a crowd that I would say are absolutely key in theologically forming the local church in the UK right now totally mean that. Some of you thinking, I just play drums every so often. No, you guys are theologically forming the local church right now. You play such a key role, so I want to say thank you. I totally believe in what you do. And the reason I believe that, or one of the reasons I believe that, is um, about nine months ago last summer, we as a church, um, KXC, if you're from outside London, you'll probably know us best as KFC. Because whenever I travel, everyone's like, oh, you're the guy with your wife, you lead this church called KFC. And I'm like, yeah, kind of. How's it going? Oh, finger licking good, which they don't understand the gag either. Um, But we're actually called KXC. So we took about 50 men away from KXC just to go back into the wild, into this forest outside London to do things that guys love doing. So we had barbecues without the salad. No rolls necessary, just we wanted the meat. You know, we played a load of sport. We did some naked mud wrestling. No, we didn't do that, don't we? Um, And we had some amazing times of worship, some great teaching and ministry. But the highlight, there was this one evening where we built this enormous bonfire. So you got 50 men around the bonfire. Most people had probably a beer in one hand, some marshmallows in the other. And a guy got his guitar from his tent, and we just start singing songs. So we start with Kumbaya, because with 50 Christian men around a bonfire, it'd be rude to sing anything else. So we start with Kumbaya, and then we just begin to sing songs from our teenage years. The first one we knocked out was the Proclaimers. Now, I wouldn't walk 500 yard, miles, and suddenly the chorus, la 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 and everyone's going nuts. And then we kind of relived the Britpop time. So it's like, you know, Wonderwall, Don't Look Back in Anger. We threw in a couple of Blur songs just to even things out. Um, and then some random requests came in. One of them, Two Princes by Spin Doctors. Anyone remember Two Princes? It was like bizarre. But my favorite moment was um, the guy who had guitar. There was just kind of this hush. We kind of thought, maybe we've run out of songs. And he just strums the A minor chord, and it's kind of almost like a spiritual moment. And then he sings out in a fairly sort of tender voice. He just said, there's a lark on the fire. And 50 men just respond. They haven't heard this song for maybe 20 years, but it's like instinctive. They're not thinking about it. They're like, and it burns like me for you. Tomorrow comes with one desire to take me away. And you could see the crowd of guys thinking, how do we know these lyrics? We haven't heard this for 20 years. Like, how do we know it? And then we start singing verse two. It's like, it ain't easy. And we're just grinning at each other. Like, we still know it. To say goodbye. Do you know this bit? So darling, please don't start to cry. Because girl, you know you got to go. I still remember it. Lord, I wish it wasn't so. And then the big chorus moment, everyone went. Wow. No, 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 no. That, that was dreadful. You know rule number one in the worship handbook. You never leave a guy on stage hanging on his own. Like, you support him no matter what. So the crowd go, say Okay, that was awful. But anyway, let's carry on. And I was just, the next morning I was thinking about that moment of like, 
Here's a song we haven't heard for probably 20 years, but during a season of our life, we heard it every day on the radio. Some of us learned to play guitar to a song like that. It was all around us. It'd been fed in again and again and again, and when the time was right, out it came, effortlessly. And I was just thinking, I wonder if I'd been the one around the bonfire just saying like, Psalm 23, like the Lord is my shepherd. I think it would have gone quiet and like, oh, that's awkward, Pete. No, 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 we haven't memorized those songs. You know, Lord of my shepherd, I shall not, what? What is it? Shall not be in want? Where does he make us lie down? Is it somewhere green? I think I remember it being somewhere green. Doesn't he restore something? Is it our heart? Is it our soul? Or if I'd said like, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. Everyone would be like, oh, yeah, I seem to remember something like that. According to your, what, is it something to do with your love? Or is it your compassion? Or maybe both? Like, blot out my transgressions, is it? In other words, myself included, most of us would have struggled because we haven't fed it in in the same way. You know, people like me, we, we like to be, believe that the people theologically shape in the local church are people like N.T. Wright and like Walter Brueggemann and Richard Balcom and Graham Tomlin and Gordon Fee and the list goes on. We like to think these theologians are the guys shaping the local church. But the reality is most people in our congregations aren't reading those folks. What they're listening to is worship songs. So the theologians shaping the local church are like Matt Redman, Martin Smith, and Kim Walker-Smith, and Joel Houston, and Graham Kendrick, and Beth Croft, and the list goes on every so often. Tim Hughes knocks in a good number, but very rare these days. That's joking, obviously. Um, It's not being recorded, is it? Just edit that bit out. Um, But the reality is, it's you guys, the worship leaders, some of you songwriters as well. You're choosing the songs that we're singing in our churches, and those songs are theologically shaping the local church. The role you play is absolutely pivotal. I really, really mean it. Thank you so much for what you do. And I want to share a few thoughts of how we can play that role maybe more effectively. And we're going to be looking at the Psalms because I think the Psalms model to us something beautiful when it comes to worship. And here's what I think they model to us. They model to us how we bring the whole of our lives into a conversation and into communion with God. Like the whole of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, how do we bring it all into a conversation and into communion with God? God. That's what the Psalms model to us. You know, um, Bono, lead singer of U2, was, was recently interviewed by a journalist. And the question he was asked is, look, you know, you're a Christian, we know that you believe in Jesus, that you're part of a local church back in Ireland, and we just want to know, like, why don't you write congregational worship songs? Songs that, you know, we could use in the, in the local church. And, and his response, this is a paraphrase, it was something like this, is the problem with, with worship songs is they don't cover the full bandwidth of the human experience. Like, they don't cover, like, the despair and the agony when you lose a loved one or you've been praying for someone and they don't experience healing. But equally, they don't cover the the experience of ecstasy and joy, like when you make love for the first time, or you hold your baby in your arms for the first time, or you score a goal at Wembley, not to equate that with the other two. But you know, those absolute moments of jubilation, like, come on! He said, worship music tends to sit in this very narrow bandwidth in the middle. He says, I want to write songs that cover the full 
bandwidth. And I remember reading that thinking, that's true, but it's tragic. It's true, but it's tragic. That a lot of our worship songs just sit somewhere in this narrow bandwidth in the middle. And just to demonstrate it, we're going to write a song in like two minutes together. Are you ready? Uh, so get your notepad and pen out if you want to. I'm going to give you an opening line. I'm going to ask you to write line two and line three of verse one. Just whatever comes to mind in the moment. So we'll go with something like, our praise to you we bring. You know, let's do it in G because that always works. Throw in a C when you fancy in E minor just to spice things up at the right time. So our praise to you we bring. Don't overthink it. Top of your head. Just come up with a second line, a third line. Just write it down. We're not going to go around the room. That would take forever. So off the top of my head, something like, our praise to you we bring. We lift our voice and sing to you, the risen king. Hallelujah. I mean, it's not great, but it's better than some of the songs we sing in our local churches, right? So let's do verse two then. Verse two. Line one, we fall down on our face. Okay, just come up with line two, line three. And then we'll finish line four with hallelujah again. We fall down on our face. What comes to mind? If I just go for it, so we fall down on our face before the God of grace. We're wearing silky lace, hallelujah. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to lie to you, I struggled with the, the final line. Although some could probably sing that with integrity, Chris Jones being one of them. Um, But apart from that, with the right melodies, the right chords, that song would work and totally fit into one of our worship sets on on a Sunday. And there's nothing wrong at one level. It helps us engage with God in worship. But it doesn't help people bring the whole of their lives into a conversation and into communion with God. It doesn't help people do that. And that's what I believe people are longing to do when it comes to worship. And we need to facilitate that journey. So I want to do three things in the time that we have this morning. I want to explain what the Psalms are to you. Or remind you, because we all know, but explain the Psalms. Secondly, give a theological framework for understanding the Psalms. And then thirdly, just lift out some pointers for us as, as worship leaders. So you ready? You ready to go for this? Okay, firstly then, what are the Psalms? Well, as the title suggests, I don't know if you can see it properly, but it says songs from the front line. It actually says songs from the front line, just so you know. Songs from the front line. Um, and the idea is that Psalms are songs. They're songs, like any song that we have playing on the radio, the pop songs we're into right now. Every song has a story. Like it's written from a moment in time. And once it's written and goes out there, it becomes timeless. Like every song you're listening to, you know it has a story, a backstory to it. Something happened in someone's life, they used that experience and and the emotions surrounding the experience and they came up with lyrics and melodies and music to articulate and express what they went through and then once it goes out there it becomes timeless. 
That's how the Psalms function. They're songs with stories. So David went through so much, you know, got married, had a kid, lost one of his kids. One of his kids, Absalom, turned his back on him. He was chased down and hunted by his mentor, Saul. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He went through so much in his life. And these Psalms, he uses them to express himself what he's going through in that moment in time. And once they're written, they become timeless. So for generations after him, the nation of Israel used these psalms as their liturgical hymn book. So when they experience victory in battle, they find one of the psalms where David was victorious in battle, and they sing the same song to express themselves to God. Or when things have gone horribly wrong, they find a psalm of lament, and they use it to let their heart sing. And they just use all of the psalms like that. And you know we do the same today, don't we, with pop songs. This isn't unique to the Psalms. We do this all the time. And and a good example would be breakup songs. So just hand in the air if you've been dumped at some point in your life. Come on, honesty. This is a safe place. There's more hands than that. There'll be ministry afterwards. It's all right. Safe place to heal. Um, So I don't know what you went through when when you were dumped. Um, But this would be my guess. This is what I went through is you go back to your house either immediately or at the end of the day and you sit on your bed and you press, press play on the CD player. You just choose the right song and you just listen to that song and then you weep into your pillow, right? Something like that. But the song you choose is like really important. You want it to help you express yourself and find therapy in it. Here's some of the songs I want to hazard a guess that maybe some of you used. Um, number one, maybe nothing compares, Sinead O'Connor. Like, been seven hours and 16 days since you took your love away. And then the, the traumatic chorus, nothing compares, nothing compares. <laughs> and just gradually you begin to weep. Maybe it was like Celine Dion all by myself, all by myself. Don't want to be, but I am. Oh, by my... Maybe it was you two, with or without you. You're reliving that scene from Friends. You know, Ross and Rachel, they break up and, and Rachel's sitting by the window and it's raining outside because it always rains when you break up. That's just standard. So she's looking out into the rain and you just hear the bass line. Dum, 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 dum. I can't live with or without you. Anyone know that one? Yeah? Okay. Um, Maybe Adele, someone like you. Maybe REM, Everybody Hurts. All the best if you chose that one. Um, maybe The Streets, slightly more optimistic. Dry your eyes, mate. I know it's hard for you, but her mind has been made up and there's plenty more fish in the sea. In other words, pull yourself together, quick cry, and then on with it. Um, or maybe Taylor Swift, the sort of slightly angry approach. We are never, ever, ever getting back together. Um, the point is... All of these songs have a story behind them and then we take the song without knowing the story and we use the song to express ourselves. And that's how the Psalms function. They're songs and they're songs with stories. But more than that, they're songs from the front line. In other words, they're songs from the battlefield. I mean, some of them quite literally 
David writes from the battlefield, but I mean it more metaphorically. They're songs written in the battlefield of life because we know that life is tough at times, isn't it? It's a battleground. We have an enemy trying to oppose us. And yes, we know the end of the story that that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, victory has already been won. So we live in victory. But we equally know that the full arrival of the kingdom of God awaits Christ's return. So we live between the first coming of Jesus and the, the second coming of Jesus in this tension, this battleground, what theologians refer to as the now and the not yet of the kingdom. We experience the nowness of the kingdom, like, yes, but we also experience the not yet of the kingdom, don't we? Day in, day out. One day you can be celebrating getting the dream job that you've been working for and longing for, marrying the dream woman or praying for a friend that experiences healing from cancer. And that day you're like, come on, this is amazing. And the very next day you might be living in defeat thinking, well, I lost the dream job. And that marriage didn't work out and I'm broken hearted. And the other friend I've been praying for tragically passed away. And we live in both victory and defeat. We live in a battlefield. And these are songs that help us in the middle of the battlefield, bring the whole of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, into a conversation and into communion with God. That's what the Psalms are. Secondly then, We want to provide a theological framework for understanding the Psalms. Now, if there's any of you that may be studying theology or just enjoy reading theology, if you've ever read um, any theology in the book of the Psalms, you'll have heard of a guy called Hermann Gunkel. He was a a German theologian, wrote a lot around the early 1900s. And um, he came up with what was known as form criticism. Any book on the Psalms will talk about Hermann Gunkel and form criticism. And his task was, let's find lots of different categories in which we can place the 150 different Psalms that we have in in, in this book. So, you know, let's come up with some of the, the main categories. Psalms of lament, and we'll put some of the Psalms into that box. And Psalms of intercession. And then there's some royal Psalms of when David is enthroned. And then there's some temple Psalms, liturgy from the temple. And then Psalms of dot, dot, dot. And you find these different categories as the, the modern mind loves to do. And we, we put the Psalms into these different boxes. And, and that's great. So a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to find what box to put this Psalm into Uh, He was incredibly influential. But then there's another theologian called Walter Brueggemann who basically came along and said, look, that's fine and and that's helpful. There's some benefit from doing the task of form criticism. But maybe there's another way of looking at the Psalms, which is let's try to find all these boxes, but let's just see these as songs written from different parts of the story of the nation of Israel. So so let's look at the story, and I'll try and draw the story up on the screen so you can see it. I don't know if it will fit in properly. But he says the story of the nation of Israel is a story that moves from orientation. Can you see that? Oh, close enough. Orientation to disorientation. To reorientation. That is the journey that the nation of Israel makes again and again and again. And you have different psalms that are used in different parts of the story. So you have psalms of orientation. In other words, the types of psalms when everything in life is great, there's so much reason for celebrating. Psalm 150 is a great example, like praise him with loud cymbals and praise him with stringed instruments too. Like let every breath 
Let everything that has breath just praise God. There's a sense of like, life's good, we're in our land, the harvests are plentiful, there's complete peace, and we want to celebrate you, God, from this place of abundance. Those would be psalms of orientation. There's loads of psalms um, like that. But then you have psalms of disorientation. Something goes horribly wrong. In other words, suddenly you're not at peace. And you know, in the, the story of the nation of Israel, the key example would be the Assyrians coming in to invade, followed by the Babylonians. And then the nation are taken captive and, and moved into exile in Babylon, where they're lost, longing for home. And you have Psalms like Psalm 137. Like, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Jerusalem. And it's like a very different type of of psalm. So in disorientation, you tend to have psalms of confession. Lord, I'm so sorry we screwed up. You have psalms of lament. You have psalms of anger. And you have psalms of intercession. Like, Lord, help us. Like, rescue us. Come and redeem us. And eventually those prayers get answered. And you move towards psalms of reorientation, which look like thanksgiving again but also psalms of intimacy. Now the psalms of thanksgiving that are written in reorientation look different to the psalms of thanksgiving written in orientation. So orientation is, God, you're amazing, so good, Psalm 150, but psalms of reorientation when it comes to thanksgiving, it just feels a bit different. Like, you know, Psalm 103. Like, praise the Lord, all my soul, and my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? And it goes on, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Like, that feels very different to, like, get the loud cymbals and the harp and let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's more like, God, you're amazing. When I screwed up, you forgave me. And when I was sick, you you healed me. Like, you redeemed me from the pit. Like, there's so many benefits. Like, Lord, thank you. It's a different type of thanksgiving, right? But both are incredibly important. So here's a theological framework, this movement from orientation to disorientation to reorientation. I find this helpful because that looks a lot like my life. Like things are going well, so much to celebrate, and then I screw up or something happens and I'm in disorientation. It's like, God, where are you? Like what's happening? I don't know where I'm going anymore. And this is really, really hard. And then God steps in. It's like amazing. And then you go on these cycles. I would say this is very helpful equally because I think this is the rhythm we see in the biblical narrative, like the, the larger narrative of scripture, which I like to describe as a movement from creation to decreation to recreation. So creation is Genesis 1 and 2, the story of the Garden of Eden. Decreation is created order unraveling, which is Genesis 3 through to Genesis 11. And then Genesis 12 onwards is the story of recreation, of how God chooses Abraham to be a father to a nation. And through that nation, he wants to bring healing and, and restoration to all of creation. He wants Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, but they keep screwing up. So God takes on human flesh in the form of Jesus Christ. And through the life, death, and resurrection, we experience salvation and redemption and healing. And then we know the end of the biblical narrative, Revelation 21 and 22, where heaven comes down. 
You know the story where we ascend to heaven? It's a nice story. It's just more to do with Plato and the Greeks than the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative is heaven comes down, heaven and earth become one, and suddenly there's no death, there's no grief, there's no crying, there's no pain, and God who's seated on his throne says, behold, I'm making all things new. Yeah? Remember that bit in the story? And in the Greek language, there's two words for new. There's neos, which means brand new. There's kainos, something old that's made new. And when God says, beholding, I'm making all things new, he says, behold, I'm making all things kainos. In other words, I'm restoring everything to how it was made to be at the beginning. I'm a God of restoration. And I think this view of the psalm captures that understanding of the nature of God and the story that we belong to. So that's perhaps a theological framework to help us make sense of the Psalms. Here's the final thing I want to do. So we're kind of semi-coming into land, but it's going to take at least 10 minutes to land this thing. So put your seatbelts on and get ready. Um, A couple of lessons from this then. The, The first lesson I want to bring to a group of worship leaders is I just really want to encourage you to never stop singing songs of disorientation. Like, I think we do orientation really well in the church, like high-octane praise. You know, the worship leader turns around to the drummer and just gives a death stare. Louder, faster, you know, bigger. And it's like this kind of wall of sound, incredible praise, and I love all of that. But in the church, I'm not sure we're that good at singing songs of disorientation. And if we're to equip people in our church to bring the whole of their lives into a conversation and into communion with God, We need to be singing songs of disorientation because our people, we included, are in a lot of pain. Um, So we've got to sing these songs of disorientation. So I just want to give you some examples. So Psalm 51, if you've got a Bible, um, you'll know this psalm probably pretty well. The backdrop, the story behind the song is that David sent his men into battle and decided as king he was not going to go with them, which is pretty rare in those days. So he sends all the men out of the city, out of Jerusalem to fight the battle. He remains home in a city with thousands of women. It's not going to go well, is it? And he's out on his roof one night and he notices as he's looking out on this city, he's like, wow, what an amazing city. And he notices on the rooftop you know, that there's a woman bathing, in other words, naked. And he's like, wow. He just gets one of the servants across and says, wow, can you go and bring that lady to me? She looks like she's got an amazing heart, an incredible personality, as if. You know, can you bring her to me? And the servant goes to get Bathsheba, and she comes in, and eventually, like David seduces her and makes love to her, and then she falls pregnant. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, it's like panic of like, oh my goodness, like what have I done? I've screwed up big time. I need to cover this up. So here's the kind of like how messed up the story is. Like the husband of Bathsheba is a guy called Uriah. He's fighting in this battle that the troops have been sent on. He's out there giving his life for the cause of David. And whilst he's giving his life in battle, David's sleeping with his wife. And he basically, David says to the commander of the army, he's like, you, you need to end it for your eye. I don't, don't really care how you do it. Either you know, he gets killed in battle, orchestrate that, or one of us accidentally kills him. It just, he can't come home from battle. And the commander says, fine, and Uriah's killed on the battlefield. And David thinks he's got away with it, so he can marry Bathsheba and, and have the kid. And eventually the prophet Nathan just has a conversation with David and exposes everything. Now, 
Living with a lie is exhausting. Let's not pretend that it wasn't exhausting for David, living with that kind of lie. Like, he's been lying to a whole nation, and, and when Nathan outs it, he's devastated. And this is a psalm of, of confession, but try and emotionally engage with the psalm, because you, you hear a lot of pain in this. So have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict and justify when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than the snow. Like this is a guy who's devastated by his own sins. Like God forgive me but more than that wash me clean because I feel dirty. And you need to know that when you stand up and lead worship and you strum the G chord and people are just ready to get going, there's a whole crowd in the room that feel guilty, but more than that, they feel dirty. And that is a massive obstacle to them coming into the presence of God. Like, God, I've screwed up big time this week. I just, I I could never be worthy to come into your presence. And I'm just so ashamed. And, uh, you know, I'm disappointed in myself. And I'm just guessing that you're disappointed with me too. And they project all of what they're feeling onto God. We need to be there in the context of worship to give them songs of disorientation so they can bring their pain, bring their guilt, bring their shame into a conversation and communion with God. Because if they don't, they won't come into his presence at all. So we need to grow in that area. If you've got a Bible, turn now to Psalm 6, which is a psalm of lament. It's the continuation of the story, if you like. So here's the story behind this song. So King David has this baby with Bathsheba, um, but he's told very early on in the life of this baby that the baby's really sick and probably isn't going to make it, isn't going to survive. Now, David screwed up big time, but that doesn't mean he doesn't love this baby. He, he's a good dad. He absolutely adores this little baby. And when he hears this baby's probably going to die, he's devastated. And we're told in the text of Scripture that he falls prostrate on the ground for seven days, refuses to eat, covers himself in sackcloth, and is crying out to God, please rescue the baby. You would do the same, right? If you knew one of your children was, was really sick and, and might die, you'd start crying out from your deepest place, God, please help. Listen to Psalm 6. It's not nice and pleasant. It's, it's a cry of pain. Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm faint. In other words, I know I've screwed up. Help. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord. Deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I don't know. Maybe this is David saying, don't let the baby die. How can he praise you when he's dead? Please, God, rescue my baby. Rescue my son. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. And it goes on. 
like this is King David, like rock bottom in disorientation, saying, God, like help me, help me, please. Again, when people walk into church on Sunday, there's some that feel shame and guilt, but there's a whole wave of people just in a lot of pain. And they want to bring that pain into a conversation and into communion with God. You know, Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest, a brilliant writer, talks about pain. Says you've got two options as to what you do with your pain. You either transmit it. In other words, you just ignore it, but you just transmit it and spread it out on those you love and those around you. Or you bring it to God and he transforms it. There's no third option. You transmit it or you transform it. And I see culture around us, there's very few safe places for people to process pain. So in my generation, suicide rates sky high. People self-medicating, drink, drugs, sexaholism, workaholism, codependent relationships, smoking, whatever addiction. They're trying to self-medicate. They're trying to numb pain because they don't have safe places to process pain. And if you look at all the stats of breakdown in the family nationwide, you know, a lot of people have no safe place to process pain. You know, where is meant to be the safe place to process pain? The church. But some people just have this understanding of church. I'll be judged there. I could never process pain there. That is tragic. You know that, don't you? That's tragic. Augustine wants to find church as a hospital for those that are sick. It's where those that are broken can experience a saviour and an embrace that heals them. We need to be singing songs that enable people in pain to bring that stuff into the arms of their father where they'll experience healing and life. We've got to sing songs of disorientation. One more example then. Uh, An angry psalm, which is just fun really. So Psalm 109, and just so you know, that just because it's in the psalms doesn't mean it's theologically right. There are, there's some lousy theology in the Psalms. You, you know that, don't you? There's some lousy theology. Partly because these are expressions of what's going on within. Like when you're hurting, you don't pray rational, logical, theologically sound prayers. Like, God, this is from you. You sent this, God. Why would you do this to me? I, I know when I'm hurting, I begin to say, this is your fault, God. I know it's not. Most of the time, it's my fault. And I know that he doesn't send things to punish me. But when you're in pain, you just begin to speak out what you really feel. And sometimes there's some lousy theology. So this is an example of, of King David. We actually don't know the story behind this psalm, but he's really peed off. Someone's hurt him there's an enemy out to get him and he's super super angry now in the backdrop just have in your mind Jesus saying love your enemies like that's the commandment like love your enemies this isn't what David is saying right now okay you ready for it so Psalm 109 verse 6 appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty and may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. Like, chill out a little bit, David. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labour. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May the sins always remain before the Lord. 
It's like, David, you do remember you killed that guy and slept with his wife and did all sorts of horrific things. You're pretty grateful that God doesn't remember those ones. And now he's saying, don't forget these ones. Like, any therapist like sitting down with, with David would say, David, you've got a very significant anger problem that we need to deal with right now. Like, how could that be worship? Like, that is in the liturgy of the nation of Israel. How can it be worship when it's potentially theologically unsound? The answer is because it's David bringing the whole of his life into a conversation and into communion with God. And I bet God hears it and says, I love it. That is beautiful. Sing it. Go on. Sing it. Punch the pillow as well. Sing it. I like it. Because David's bringing himself in all his pain and anger before God. You know in our churches, like, so many people battling with anger. Because people don't know how to deal with anger these days, they bury anger. You either express it in a healthy way or you suppress it. And if you suppress it, it's the number one cause of depression. Like, what are the depression rates, you know, in in our generation in London like? Oh my goodness, sky high! Because most people think, I could never bring anger to church. God wants praise. The lead pastor wants praise. Hands in the air, the feel-good songs. But I don't know how to express anger. We've got to learn how to sing songs of disorientation that help people bring the whole of their lives into conversation and into communion with, with God. So we need to learn to sing the, the songs of, of disorientation. Quick story about this. So like... My dad told me this story of, of when Tim, my older brother, was about four years old. And um, dad had to say no to Tim, for whatever reason, to a four-year-old. Like, no, you can't have a third ice cream. Or like, no, we're not singing Here I Am to Worship again. Not again. You know, no. And as a four-year-old, no is just pretty tough to take. And, and Tim runs up to my dad, who's seated in his office chair, jumps into his lap and starts pummeling his fist into my dad's chest saying I hate you daddy I hate you daddy I hate you and when my dad heard Tim doing that he broke down and cried my dad just started weeping and then Tim ran off and my dad wasn't weeping because Tim's words were hurting him now he expected that from a three or four year old he started weeping because he realized he'd never had a safe place to do that to his dad At the age of, I think it was like almost four, he was sent off to boarding school. As a four-year-old, he was terrified, so frightened. All this anxiety and fear within, he didn't have any place to take it. He was really angry that he'd been abandoned and left to fend for himself at such a young age. He had nowhere to take it. So what did he have to do? Like what most of us would do, he had to bury it, just swallowed it. For my dad, it was probably 50 years later that depression kicked in. Because he realized he'd never had a safe place to beat his fist into the arms of his dad and say, I hate you, daddy. You don't have to mean it, but it's what you feel in that moment. You know, God's big enough for you to beat your fist into his chest and say, I hate you, daddy. I hate you, daddy. Because actually that is a moment of intimacy. So we need to learn to sing the songs of disorientation. Final lesson then, and I will land with this, is we need to keep singing the songs of intimacy. Like, as I travel around a bit, and it's not much, but every so often I get to travel around and be part of local churches, there's a fear about songs of intimacy these days. It's kind of cool to knock it. Like, oh, do you remember when the church used to sing those Jesus is my girlfriend or Jesus is my boyfriend type songs? Oh, thank God we don't sing them anymore. 
And, and I hear that kind of rhetoric and I think, no, 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 that's tragic. I, I mean it, it's tragic. When the church can't sing simple love songs, the church will suffer. The church will suffer. Because intimacy is the pathway to impact. If you want to have impact in the world, you need to learn how to do intimacy with Jesus. And because we live in this highly sexualized culture, we're, we're terrified of what intimacy might look like in church, but we've got to learn a way of doing intimacy well. Here's two examples of people who learn intimacy and, and brought incredible transformation as a result. First one, Apostle John. You know the story of the Apostle John, don't you? Like when he wrote his gospel, he's the one that refers to himself, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. Yeah, you remember? Yeah. Oh, and Peter did this, and James did that, and then the one that Jesus loved, <laughs> me, um, and he did this. And, and you can imagine him like, oh, what's your name? Dave, great to meet you, Dave. I'm the guy that Jesus loves. Really nice to meet you. Like he so found identity in the fact that he's loved by Jesus. And you have this moment just before Jesus is going to make the journey to the cross, gathers his friends in the upper room. And it's a moment of unbelievable intimacy when John begins to rest his head on the chest of Jesus. So they're not sat around a table, remember in that context, they're reclining on the floor around a meal and and John just begins to lean his head on the chest of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of intimacy. It doesn't surprise me that John was the one that knew, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. It experienced intimacy with Jesus. From that moment on in the narrative, you know that every one of the disciples screws up, yeah? So Judas betrays Jesus, and Peter disowns him three times, and one by one, the disciples begin to fall away. So they went, Jesus is on the cross, naked, ashamed, in agony, hanging there. Who's left? His mum and John. And I remember hearing someone preach on this, and they just made the interesting point. The first one leaning is always the last one standing. It's the first one leaning who's always the last one standing. It's the person that's learned how to do intimacy with Jesus that's going to have greatest impact in the world. Because when you know you're loved, you can be radical. Final story then, the apostle Peter. So he's the guy that disowns Jesus three times. And in John 21, you have the story of his restoration where Jesus approaches him, you know, the appearance after the resurrection and has this one-on-one, like, let's just talk about the elephant in the room that you disowned me three times. So they have that kind of conversation and the way Jesus does it, he says to Peter, he says, by the way, I want to ask you, do you love me? Peter says, like, I know, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And he's not like pointing out a group of sheep in the corner, go and feed those sheep there. This is like language of restoration, like the language of a shepherd is a leader. It's like saying, Peter, it's time to lead again. Let's deal with what happened. It's time to lead again. Anyway, second time, he says, hey, Peter, I know we spoke about it a bit ago, but like, just out of interest, do you love me? And Peter says, like, you know that I I love you. Great. Feed my sheep. Third time, hey, Peter, like, do you love me? And Peter's upset. He says, but you know that I love you. So what's going on in that encounter? And there's, there's two layers. The first layer is there's three betrayals, three moments where Peter disowns Jesus. And each question is a moment of healing, pulling out a spear that had gone into Peter's heart. Like, do you love me? Yes, good. I'm healing that first betrayal. Second one, third one. So there's this level of restoration that's going on. But the second layer, you need to know a little bit about Greek. So in the Greek language, you've got three words for love, right? Well, you've got more than that, but the three biggies are eros love. We know about that. It's great. Um, you've got philia love, which is brotherly love. 
And then you've got agape love, which is this divine, perfect, unconditional love. And what's going on in the Greek of this text is Jesus approaches Peter and says, hey, Peter, like, do you agape me? Like, are you all in when it comes to loving me? And Peter says, yeah, you know that I filial you. Like, you're a best mate. I love you as a buddy. And Jesus is like, yes, yeah, not really what I asked. Second time, hey, hey, Peter, like, do you agape me? Peter's like, yeah, I feel you, you. Love you like a buddy. You're a best mate. It's like, it's not what I asked. Third time, hey, Peter, do you agape me? And that's the moment where Peter's upset. Why is he upset? And the answer is because he knows deep down he can't yet say, yes, I agape you. Yes, I'm all in. Yes, I'm going to hold nothing back. Now, something happens from that moment to the Acts of the Apostles when you read stories of Peter who's like just completely gung-ho, reckless, all in. He's the one that's crucified. In fact, he says, I'm not worthy to die like my saviour died. Crucify me upside down. Greater agape has no one than this that he would die for his friend. Peter is all in when it comes to following Jesus, loving Jesus. What happened between no, I can't yet say it. I feel you. You're like a buddy, your best mate, but I can't say agape to the, the story of the early church. And I just simply want to suggest he learned how to do intimacy. He learned how to do intimacy. Not just to offer high octane praise and do all of that stuff, but move beyond that, you know, entering the temple courts with thanksgiving and praise, but but moving toward the holy of holies where you just begin to sing love songs to your father. And when the church can't sing love songs, we have far less impact. And I look at movements like Bethel, and I think one of the things they're just doing so well is they're singing love songs. Some of them are really simple. They're not dripping with like loads of the Bible and theology and we need all of those songs. Some of them are just simply, I love you, I love you. And when you can lose yourself and just say, Jesus, I love you because I'm loved by you. I want to give myself for you. I agape you. That's when you're going to have an incredible impact in the world. So why don't we stand?